right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Creating Structure podcast. I'm John Wheaton. It's great to have you. This is podcast number 14. I am pleased to have my guest, Mr. Tim Finley. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, John. How are you? Great. It's great to have you. And uh, some of our guests will know you. Many will not. So uh, why don't you tell us where you're from, what you do, where you work, and uh, what your what your background is? Yeah, no problem. And again, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, the precursor to this, like we talked, I said I was uh, humbled that you asked me to be on and uh, hopefully have a, enough to say and get everybody engaged. But yeah, a little bit of background about me. So I live in southern Minnesota, born and raised, and I live in a town, uh, a very tiny town just north of Owatonna, Minnesota. And most people would recognize Owatonna as kind of the home of Viracon. So nonetheless, born and raised here, went off to college, got a marketing management degree, uh, worked with Fastenal just out of college for just on, just over two years in an outside sales role, and then moved back to Southern Minnesota because I really like the area and uh, it's where my family is and I enjoy it. So when moving back here, I took a, took a role with Viracon in their sales department um, not because I had an affinity for glass at the time, but because they're one of the largest employers in the area and uh, had family or friends that worked there and it was safe and comfortable to do. So worked there for just under five years. And then I took a chance to move on and go work for Sage Glass. And that's been kind of a large part of my career and my uh, network building. So I spent just under 12 years at Sage, kind of grew up through the ranks and and Sage uh, is equal distance north of where I live to where Viracon is south. So the commute and the change and the travel uh, didn't necessarily have to change all that much. And then uh, almost two, well, exactly two years to the date. I forgot to mention, this is our uh, two-year anniversary here at TFIN Building Solutions. I started this company in this rep firm. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Today is the two-year anniversary? Well, it's tech yesterday, March 1st, but yeah, officially in operation for two full years. Ladies and gentlemen, let's wish Mr. Finley a happy anniversary. You have survived one of the most difficult times to start a business. I'm sure in your business plan, you had make sure you know how to manage through a once in a lifetime pandemic, right? Tell me you did that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, and of all the planning <laughs> and all the, the necessary thought and, uh, and reading and, and the books, you know, I never got the one on how to deal with a worldwide pan pandemic in the first 12 <laughs> months of business. <laughs> Especially in sales, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Welcome yeah. to your new reality, Tim. <laughs> right. Right. But you know, it's, uh, all things considered, the best way for me to explain it is, is I'm doing exactly what I want to do, exactly where I want to be doing it. I love so that. what better way? So um, I did not know you worked at Fastenal. That, that's great. Um, that, that's a very well-known name. And how long were you at Viracon again? Uh, just under five years, I think. Just under and five then, years. And did you yeah. work with under, like, were you with Garrett in the, in the boys? I was. Yeah. Yeah. So I was fortunate to be a part of the, the sales management team where Brad Austin was still there. Okay. Um, you know, Garrett Henson, uh, Bob Randall, and then a lot of the, a lot of the sales reps, um, obviously are still there. Some of them have recently retired, but, uh, it was a, it was a great place to work. I'll tell you what it was, uh, 
some of my near and dear lifelong friends uh, I still keep in touch with from Viracon. It was a great place to work and a, a great experience to learn how a sales-driven company can offer services to differentiate themselves. Huh. I like that. I like that. And Brad Austin, who I think is now retired, right? He moved on to Harmon as president of Harmon. And uh, Garrett is still very involved. But then he moved on to Sage. So you know Helen, and she was one of my earlier guests, Helen Sanders. Yeah, and it was Helen very well. Yeah, and um, you are the first true, well, you know what? I should check this. I think you're the first true marketer, both from an education point of view and, and pure sales guy. But also, I love in your LinkedIn profile, I love your tagline, son, problem solver, daylight fanatic, leadership and teamwork. We got to explore that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, uh, everybody wants to differentiate themselves in social media. And I happened to come up with that because for so many years, you know, we flew around the world um, promoting and presenting on Sage Glass being a sun problem solution. And so I kind of gave myself the moniker of a sun problem solver. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> and, good. Uh, yeah. So why don't, you know, I, I also like that you're representing actual glass fabricator. Um, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what Viracon does, a little bit about what Sage does, and then I want to get into what your work entails now, what you do now um, as, a, as a sales manufacturer's rep and, and just what that life looks like. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, my, all of my professional experience has been in the commercial side of business and primarily in sales and business development. So at, at Fast and All, I was an outside sales uh, responsible for generating and uh, creating new opportunities as it related to industrial equipment sales, mm-hmm. be it screws, supplies, things of that nature. Uh, when I went to Viracon, um, who I'm sure most people know is a high, high-end glass fabricator that specializes in creating their own efficient coatings and, and, and aesthetics for buildings and, and buildings of large scale. So my role was um, pretty entry level when I started there, I was in estimating. And at that point in time, Firecon had us where we would estimate for one particular region. So I started out in the Midwest, and then I got a chance to move to the West Coast estimating. And then when I finally left, I was working with some of the bigger clients on both the East and West Coast, be it Permastalisa, Benson, and so on, mm-hmm. all in the estimating, all in estimating. So um, the great part about it was, is that it was sales focused. However, it really taught me, um, you know, you had to really be technical and understand what it is you're talking about and be able to articulate that to a customer. And then I took that to Sage and you'd mentioned Helen Sanders and uh, I have great things to say about Helen. She actually interviewed me and hired me for the role at Sage. Really? So I, I, yeah, yeah. And you know, the great thing about Sage, technically orientated company, um, you know, founded by John Van Dyne. He's a chemist, Helen PhD. There's a number of PhDs in the building and so on. And here I am one of the first commercial focus sales guys to come in the building. And, uh, you know, at first I, I, I thought I, I re- regretted the decision, John, just because, you know, Viracon, it was very social. It was very sales driven. You know, the more outgoing you were, it seemed the more fun you could have. And then you get to say got to Sage and I just didn't click with everyone. Mm-hmm. Not, not in a, not in a negative way, but in a way that, you know, um, 
it was a bit intimidating for me, I guess, you know, I have a marketing management degree with all these folks that are with PhDs and they're, you know, um, just bringing a different aspect of approach than I was typically used to in terms of decision-making thought process and all of that. Were you the first commercial salesperson or were, did you join a group? I joined a group. It was a very small group. Uh, the gentleman that, uh, was heading the sales at the time, Lou Podbelski, who's a kind of an industry Lou. veteran. Yeah, yeah, great guy, great, great mentor. Um, taught me an amazing amount in my career. Um, he and then one other regional sales manager were on board. And then I was the first, let's call it outside salesperson for Sage. And I had the upper Midwest uh, sales territory. Now, Helen had done a good job with all the hats that she wore in getting out and kind of pioneering the message. But uh, I was really focused on obviously promoting and driving for sales. So we were lucky, uh, fortunate and lucky, you know, in those early days, we had some success and we continued to build on that. And I got a chance to, to kind of take that on a national level and then a little bit of a global level. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun along the way as we did it. Okay. So talk to me about, uh, let's explore that for a, a minute. You said it was a bit uncomfortable at first. You, you Here you are, a, a commercial marketing and sales guy joining a very technically driven organization, um, but you were there 10 years. Uh, what were some of the things that you did or how you worked through bringing the sales and marketing client relationship mindset to the technical side and working through all that, how, how, how did you gain a comfort factor? Maybe there's some things that would benefit us by hearing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was fortunate to start in more of an inside role. Okay. So my technic, my title was sales and marketing coordinator, but in a company of 41 people, um, you know, you wear many hats. And so I had a chance to really learn the, the process to which electrochromic glass is made all of the consideration. So glass fabrication was easy for me to grasp coming from Biocon, but more importantly was around the controls. And at the time, um, you know, the, the understanding of the programming was really um, interesting and I caught on to it and uh, was able to kind of take that and communicate it in a way that people not only understood, but wanted to hear more about it. Because at the end of the day, it really is a simple product. Yeah. So tell the audience, though. I mean, so Sage is a glass fabricator, but they make electrochromic glass. Tell the audience what electrochromic glass is. Sure. And in the simplest of terms, it's glass that can be controlled from a clear to a tinted state to solve sun problems. And okay. it's a microscopically thin coating to which it's coated on the inside of the outboard light. So it, in its natural state, is a low E coating. It's got low emissivity properties. And then we apply a very low voltage current to it. And the rate and the amount at the, that you apply to it determines how dark it can get. I see. So it's on the number two surface of the... Well, well technically, I always say it's on the inside of the outboard light because uh, the physical glass makeup is actually a laminated outboard light. Okay. And... The, the, the great uh, reason for that or, or the development of that was, is when we were 
starting to build, we were going to build a high volume manufacturing facility. John Van Dyne and team knew that if we were to cut and then coat, there was not a, a process flow or a throughput that really led to a profitability just because just because of the variation and the, and the process. So what Sage actually does is takes stock sheets of glass that are really thin, like 2.2 millimeters, mm-hmm. and they coat one large stock sheet. So it's almost like they're floating it like you would, and then they deliver it to the back half of the factory where it gets fabricated. I see. So, yeah. So it's um, same size, same recipe, same line speed, and that allows you to obviously increase yield, throughput, and uh, overall operation excellence. Great. So you've had a chance to be on both the traditional and the emergent side of the glass fabrication, glass coating, and, and as you say, sun problem solving. So yeah. with, that, with that background, which is great, you know, you're the first person that has really kind of been, again, more in sales and as a quote, a manufacturer's rep, though I hate to say that word because it has a certain connotation. But um, that's talk, okay. It's better than talk, sales guy. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about work, what your work entails now. And as you get into that, you made the transition from working for someone to starting your own thing. So there's an entrepreneurial aspect that I think people will be interested in. What mm-hmm. led to that? And what led to that decision? And then just talk to us about your work now, what it entails, what's the focus, et cetera. Okay. So yeah, you're right. Uh, We are a manufacturer's rep firm and we have a select number of products that we represent here in a defined territory. I call it the upper Midwest. So I'm based here in Minnesota. And then we handle the surrounding states, Wisconsin, Iowa, some products bring us into Nebraska and then the Dakotas. And the the strategy and the vision of when I was putting this together is, is that there's certain products out there like a Sage glass or a Graham window or an Okalux glass product where, you know, they're in any given category, they're, they're kind of the, what just for better terms, they're the most expensive. Right. And we always put price aside because there's always a price, but behind that there needs to be a technical uh, quality validation. Right. And then a service validation and then price comes with it. So, when I was getting into this, you know, having, having spent almost 12 years with Sage Glass, you really get used to hearing no <laughs> for, a lot of, <laughs> for a lot of different reasons. But in the same regard, you know, it taught me, you know, the, the merits of, of promoting a technical product to a very technical audience. Hmm. And, and with that, you can build credibility to the point it's more of consulting, John, than it is really product representation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because ultimately we're we're positioning to win the project, but we're also helping the designs and the the dreams become a reality of the stakeholders. And and with these higher end, more costly products, be it that they've been around for seventy five years or they're relatively new to the marketplace because of their price tag or because of their importance to the overall aesthetics and function of the building, we get to, we get to sit down with a broader group of stakeholders than maybe just traditional products would where you're only selling to the installer. Mm -hmm. You know, most of these decisions are made 
at the most intimate level and that's at the ownership level. So once you have an equal seat at the table, uh, you have the ability to influence in a way that makes sense within the parameters of the design. I guess, you know, when we talked and we were talking through some of the things we should talk about, I mentioned that I believe the industry could do a better job of utilizing the resources manufacturers have in house. So take a sage glass, for example, or take, you know, any, any good manufacturer, they have in-house expertise that's available to the commercial market around their products. At, and it's included in the cost of sale, meaning everybody doesn't have to be an expert about everything. Let's go to the source. Let's utilize the in-house technical capabilities that they have, be it in people, be it in software, technology, you know, there's some really some amazing things out there that these manufacturers have developed to continue to, to drive their value proposition and improve the return on investment. And, you know, in our role, being the forward facing person of these products, you know, I'm really just the person that gives access to those, right? I need to, I need to, facilitated in a way that we're not chasing things, you know, we're not spending resources and time on things that uh, aren't going to go anywhere. But, you know, in the same regard, we need to be smart about how we position in the early stages and who to get involved at the, at the right time. It's kind of like a cast of characters and uh, you got to know whose role and, and time on stage is. There's a lot to unpack there. Who are those stakeholders? You're you're not approaching price. You're approaching from the value proposition. It sounds like you're, like you said, you're creating visibility and awareness, helping to facilitate. But who are those stakeholders that are at the table that you're speaking to? Yeah. So ideally, you know, my if I if I could d- devote eighty percent of my time to one thing, it would be architectural promotion, because architects, designers, um, you know, if they have in-house engineering chances are an owner has come to them to, to kind of bring their dream to reality, both in function and in form and, and aesthetics. And, you know, the, it's, it's highly unusual for product reps to be calling on owners um, just because, you know, they have a, they have a dream of what they want to do, but they don't know what type of window performance they need, so to speak. So, so if I could spend most of my time in front of architects, it would be on the educational side of the products that we offer. And again, kind of going way back to your question or your comment about our manufacturer's rep firm, I wanted to be vertically integrated so that the products that we represented were around the building envelope and or the glass and glazing on the inside of the building mm-hmm. for, for a number of reasons. One, that's my kind of expertise and background to um, the buying channel is the same. So contract glazers are the people that actually physically write us the check or the manufacturer a check. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're selling into the commercial environment. And uh, when I say commercial, we have to kind of segment that because a lot of these higher end products aren't going in your standard storefront strip mall. It's more owner-occupied space, higher ed, healthcare, the types of buildings that are spending the dollars mm-hmm. uh, in design for, again, that feature function and aesthetics. 
Go back to your statement about utilizing resources. I, I like that for the benefit of the stakeholders who are listening, the the decision makers. You, you're saying that you believe there's an there's an underutilization of the manufacturing and intellectual intellectual capabilities uh, available within the within the manufacturers that's in the cost of sale, right? That's what you're yes. saying? Yep. Yep. So, and again, it kind of goes back to, if you recall, you, you, I saw on social media, you tweeted one time that, uh, you know, there's a lot of technical minds in our industry, but making that forward facing as a service offering is hard to do, mm-hmm. right? So the good manufacturers that have listened to the market feedback in terms of what would help further validate either our performance, our aesthetics, or really what matters to the end user and those that have to procure and design with the product. So then they develop the tools and the resources. So call it a tech service department, call it a, you know, a customer success department, whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, you know, the manufacturer, even, even privately owned mom and pop startup companies, you know, they're founded with some type of product and that product is, is to be different to the comp, you know, some other solution and or product, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And once you know that, how do you deliver that message? Okay. So you can hire salespeople and, you know, and l- unless you've got a, a, a good reputation and a strong network, most people like to see a technical, I mean, what do you want to say? A technical title be it sales engineer or tech services, something along those lines where, okay, you know, thanks salesperson, you've introduced me to the product, but now I need to talk to somebody about what it really does. Gotcha. Yeah. And at that point, you know, if you, if you've got the in-house resources in that tech service or customer success side of the business, you know, you're not offering that to every single customer. It should be for those that, you know, you almost account manage and you, you know, what, what is going to differentiate your product and your offering outside of price? Well, it's the quality of the product and the service. And the service really comes from those tools that these manufacturers have developed. So take, for example, and I keep bringing up dynamic glass, you know, it's near and dear to my sure. heart. And, uh, you know, it's a product I absolutely believe in. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you create that value proposition beyond a wow factor of seeing it and seeing what it can do? Okay. Well, you can start to do daylight analysis, right? So those are expensive. Uh, most architects have some level of doing that in-house or, or a means and methods of doing it. Well, if you're pursuing a project to create a category, so something that the owner or, or architect hasn't envisioned to date, and you're trying to create that vision for them, you need to do it in a way that, that they can really grab onto visually, right? Mm-hmm. And aside from seeing an installation, how do you do that? So you, you know, you develop the in-house tools that are expensive and, uh, and, you know, you start to, you start to offer those when you have a good opportunity. Excellent. That's, that's a great example. Um, so the, the work you do now um, as as this, as a representative, and it sounds like you're representing the value proposition of these companies more than anything else. As you said, price follows. 
I, I, yeah. I, I do have to go. I, I forgot to get my shot in when you said I was the sales guy in this technical organization. As I've said this on prior shows that came from one of my father's early general managers who had a big sign on his wall that said, remember, nothing happens till somebody sells something. And yeah, you probably see me, <laughs> you probably see me tweet that sometimes, but you know, right. You can have the greatest product in the world or the greatest technical service in the world, but if nobody knows about it, it doesn't matter. We, we don't ever want to hear somebody go, oh no, here comes the sales guy or the manufacturer's rep. It should be, oh good, finally somebody to help explain what it is I, I should be right. buying and why, right? Right. And that kind of speaks back to my early days at Sage. You know, I was working with highly technical people, extremely intelligent and, uh, you know, trying to create a market. Well, if you can, if you can take that, like I said, and, and explain it in a way that people understand and then in turn want to learn more about it, you know, you really start to create value there. Yeah. So, okay. A little pause here. I, I'm just, I've got a, so many questions. My ADD brain bounces all around. So have you explained your, your why? Is that a fair question? What is your why personally? Like what's, what's the reason and motivation behind TFIN building solutions, Sun Problem Solver? Have, do you feel like you've already expressed it? Did I miss it? No, I mean, I can, I can draw uh, further into that. So you know, at Sage, I was very fortunate to kind of grow up through the ranks, had many different roles. And a lot of that uh, had me on the road. So I was traveling uh, weekly, sometimes twice in a week or all week, uh, which was fine because I loved the work I was doing. I just didn't necessarily enjoy getting on a plane to have to do it. So mm -hmm. I've got three boys. I didn't mention that in the, in the opening remark. Uh, and we have a great quality of life in Southern Minnesota. You know, we see all four seasons. We're very active. Uh, in the outdoors and just life and community in general. So part of the reason why I enjoyed Virocon so much and, and stuck with Sage so long is because they are local to our community. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was fun for me or, you know, it was, it was energizing for me to be a part of, you know, these companies in the local community to which my family and everyone lives. The further I got away from it, the harder it was to maintain kind of those business relationships where, you know, our organ TFIN building solutions now that I have a focused territory here in the Midwest, I can continue to invest deeper in those relationships with the people that I'll see more regularly. Mm. Uh, in a national or, or, or further role, you know, you're kind of just parachuting in on the big opportunities from time to time, and you're not really getting that opportunity to develop those deep relationships. So ultimately my why uh, to start this business was, is because for two things, one, um, St. Cobain Sage Glass is a great organization. Um, but once you get to a certain point, there's only so much more you can give. And what I was seeing is that it was more of me <laughs> and my time. And I can't really put a price on that because, hmm. you know, it's, it's who I am. It's, you know, I, I'd like to, to, um, you know, be kind of in charge of my own destiny, if you will. And, uh, you know, St. Cobain as an organization is very good about career building that if you don't find what you're looking for in a given business unit, 
that they will help you find within the family of businesses your career path because they'd rather keep the talent in St. Cobain rather than have it leave to go to a different business. So all that to say was, is that just kind of personally and professionally, I, I was getting wore out. Mm-hmm. Um, 12 years in a startup mentality company can, can weigh on you when you're sure. creating a market. And, uh, you know, I wanted, I thought I was at the right time in life, kind of the right time in the economy, really, in 2018, when, um, to, to jump out. And one other thing I saw too, John, that I haven't mentioned is that we're seeing some turnover in our industry in terms of the, the longstanding um, senior guys, you know, That's kind true. of that, yeah. you know, and, and, and fortunately for me, some of those, some of those people that have made, you know, a name for themselves and or their products are finally enjoying retirement and it opened up some product lines. So I guess all that to say is, is that it was the right time for me. Um, I, I had the opportunity well at Sage to kind of hire on and start a rep network and, and some of my sales leadership roles. So I got a chance to understand and see the mentality of independent reps. And I was kind of always enamored by it Hmm. and, and, uh, just chose to do it. I guess I, I jumped. Boy, to have that experience, thanks for that, to have that experience of building it from the inside out and then going out and, quote, becoming one, that's that's not a typical perspective. That probably was pretty valuable in helping you have insights into how you would structure your own representation firm, wasn't it? Absolutely. What it also gave me, John, was exposure to um, how reps interact with manufacturers and and quite frankly, who are the good manufacturers to try to align with? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in that, you know, we were we were fortunate at Sage when we were building our rep network that we had we had great reps who had great products, and I kept those relationships even after whether Sage chose to go to a direct sales model or you know I just wasn't involved in that portion of the business any further. You know, I've always kind of valued the 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 stock in your network. And so a lot of the reps that I had worked with in the past were very um, willing to open ear and discuss. And, you know, those late night conversations when I was trying to plan a pathway forward, they were very helpful in that. Now, that's excellent. So you, you made the decision and you, you, you formed your own, your own firm, TFIN Building Solutions. Talk about that experience so far. I mean, the first year was startup year the second year was covid year um right but you know it's different so part of it was a lifestyle decision you're saying which many people have made that lifestyle decision um but what's it like working for yourself versus working for someone else well my boss is a real jerk you know Uh, (laughs) (laughs) you knew that was coming but um well it's interesting you know i having the chance to work for such an organization like St. Cobain, you know, the training, the management um, schools that they put you through and the, the different things, I really had a great grooming mm-hmm. for a lot of different things. And to be able to, to utilize some of that in a very small perspective of this business is exciting. Um, you know, for example, I, I, uh, I needed a marketing coordinator. I, you know, I'm a marketing management degree. I enjoy the visual aspects and the tools and the techniques that you use in it. 
but dollars per hour, it doesn't make sense for me to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hired an intern, which really in turn has turned into just a marketing coordinator position. Um, and the process to which I did that was, you know, obviously learned in my previous life and, you know, the way that you go about interviewing and setting expectations and then managing and mentoring, um, you know, I've been able to bring into the business. I would say, you know, the, the most stressful part and anybody that's ever started a business would know this is that, uh, you know, your first year is free. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, my wife is a, is a tremendous supporter in my life. She's, you know, one of my biggest fans, I would say, and would follow me to the moon if I told her I had a path to get us there. Hmm. But when I told her I was really going to make this jump, because, you know, all things considered, I had a great job at Sage. Um, you know, she said, well, I believe in you, which was great to hear. And then she told me, one, I don't want to take a step backwards. And two, I don't want to make up the difference. So with all that confidence, here I jumped. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good candid input. So how did you manage through that? You know, it, it's just with everything, you got to keep an optimistic outlook. You know, the first few months and trying to find my way. And quite frankly, the, uh, you know, our line card of manufacturers we're representing has grown mm-hmm. um, and it's changed a little bit. Um, you know, but some of those mainstays, we were fortunate to grab onto some work. The nice thing was, is that I I, I had a chance to get out and see the people that I had called on back in 2008, 2009 mm-hmm. here in the Midwest, because there's some great talent in the Midwest. There's some great, uh, you know, glazing shops, installers, there's a great design community mm-hmm. and, and in the Midwest, um, your access or your, your entry to business, meaning your access to decision makers isn't as guarded as say Chicago or New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of went out on like a, like a, a, a tour, right? Let's go meet everybody and see what everybody's up to and let them know what I'm doing. And, uh, and from there we caught, grabbed onto some work and, uh, have really, really, you know, even amidst the pandemic, um, you know, we're fortunate to see projects going forward, pro- products selling. Um, and for me personally, I think what COVID allowed me to do is um, work in my business a little bit more in the day-to-day function because I'm not traveling mm-hmm. and really identify where I could use help as we continue to grow. Um, you know, with the economy as it was in 2019, had it stayed that way, uh, I would have had to have hired already. Mm-hmm. And that's great. You know, that's growth, but you know, is it reactionary growth? Uh, you know, it, it's given me an opportunity to kind of be more strategic about it. Yeah. I like that. Um, let's dive down that for a second. Uh, with the COVID experience, working in your business more, getting more into the into the pieces and parts that maybe you hadn't been able to, if it would have been otherwise. Um, Have you come to any conclusions, do you think, on whether you'll spend more time in office on virtual meetings versus when to travel? Or do you think that needs to be the tail of the whip, like once we get around to it, to be able to discern that? Because there's a value in being in front of people, but there's also a lot of downtime getting to and from locations. What's your thoughts about that? Have Have you come to a conclusion? You know, I have 
and I, I, I doubt it's right or wrong. It's just the way I am, but I Good. need to be in front of people. I need to be in front of people. Um, you know, it's my comfort zone. I enjoy doing it. And what I've really learned, um, over the years of sales is that, uh, you know, if someone's, someone's in a position of buying, there's no better way to get to them to go see them, ask for the order. Don't be afraid of, <laughs> don't be afraid of asking for the order, you know, and, and you, you know, you can do that. I, I find it much more valuable to do it in person. Well, that's really good. I appreciate that. Um, that is a unique perspective, but that's a lot of self-awareness there. It, certainly for those who, who recognize that in themselves and can command a room or can uh, listen and clarify, well, I think that is a differentiator to be able to be in front of people as opposed to in two dimensions on a screen like we are now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but no doubt, you know, so that's on the, you know, that's on the um, manufacturer installer relationship side, because that really is the business transaction that we represent. Right. Mm-hmm. But through the promotional aspects, um, you know, I think I've talked to, to you uh, recently and I keep in touch with a lot of other people in the industry. Unfortunately, architectural promotion is non-existent right now. Hmm. And that's challenging for a company that's set up to ultimately pr- promote. I mean, that's what we do. We promote products to in the architectural community. So, um, you know, from a virtual aspect, I see that happening more and more. Um, you know, the, the age old lunch and learn, every manufacturer kind of with the fancy marketing term pivoted to where they were going to give the virtual lunch and learn presentations. Yeah. Uh, We did a couple, we did a couple of them. And, um, quite frankly, I didn't, I I didn't find it worth the time. Um, just because I'm sure like most people it's lunchtime, it's a topic that they've been invited to, but may or may not care. And if you're not physically in the space, kind of commanding that presentation, there's a thousand other things people could be doing. And every manufacturer feels like was racing out and uh, architects working at home or whatever, remote, um, we're getting over inundated. Hmm. So I guess that's, that's the feedback I've, I've heard. Now, what I'm impressed with is how important social media and digital marketing will play its part. Mm-hmm. Because that really is the way that we're going to get in front of uh, the architectural community, I believe, for the for the foreseeable future. That's that's a great perspective. Talk about that some more. So, digital marketing and social media. You, you're not saying just in COVID. You're saying post COVID that you believe that's absolutely, big... absolutely. I think you know with with some of these more sophisticated products, there's a lot of information to get out to people. Right? We want to just kind of want an information dump on people. Mm-hmm. But you're seeing some of these good marketers and some of these great manufacturers come to market with that digital piece, meaning more video, more short, fast hitting ways to get in front of people. Um, and and sad to say, there's quite a few companies out there that haven't even gotten to that point yet. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you ask them for a, a portfolio of projects they've worked on, they would scramble to put together even pictures to send you and. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the good companies that we're already kind of adopting to, to new age ways are really thriving on that. 
I mean, take, for example, your, your, your podcast, right? Uh, you know, this is new in 2021, I think, or 2020, 2020. And you know, it's, it's kind of the new, it's the new age of, of, of promotion. You know, you're, you're not selling your services or, you know, what, what your company does on this, but what it's doing is it's creating that mind share. It's creating that awareness. It's kind of that think tank, if you will, a content creator. You know, uh, yeah, this is a great topic. All of it, digital marketing, social media awareness. I mean, on the one hand, we know that social media is free. So we're the product. So somebody else is benefiting from the data side. Otherwise they wouldn't exist. On the other right. hand, you know, there's something that we can leverage about that. I, I'm really convinced, Tim, probably to your comment that now and for the foreseeable future, long term, even, you know, you you want to be a platform. You, you want to be a well, not a sinkhole. You want to be a spring. Uh, you know, you want to you want to collaborate with others. You want to create a platform which others can share. You learn from each other. Certainly the podcast is one way to do it, but so are some of the other forms you're speaking about. Did you, did you discover this yourself and just in terms of your analysis and awareness of things in terms of digital marketing and social media? It's, it's something that obviously spoke to you. How did you figure that out? Well, um, you know, again, back to Sage or my most previous, uh, professional career prior to starting this business, you know, the sales and marketing worked very close together. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to create a, a, a category for a building product in what is a pretty traditional <laughs> industry, uh, you got to get creative. And so we were fortunate to, to have the opportunity to think outside the box, so to speak. And, and uh, you know, the marketing team was always really good about involving um, sales in those types of decisions. So Got, got to be aware of it. Plus in my uh, own personal interest, again, you know, marketing, because I believe sales and marketing are really the same thing. The only difference is, is that sales has, you know, to sell something, you have to make a transaction, but you're really marketing yourself and or the products through the tools and resources you have at you. Um, but no, I, I think with the digital aspect of things and with the uh, social media aspect it really dawned on me that, you know, my, my company, Tfin Building Solutions, I try at times to talk about it when I say we or us and so on. But, you know, aside from Kayla, who's our marketing coordinator starting recently, I've been a one-man band. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to make it sound bigger than it maybe really is um, just intentionally. But my personal uh, professional brand uh, is as equally important as my business, I guess, because we're the same thing. And so I've really paid attention to how, how I can market that. Hmm. Do you believe ultimately that the leaders of businesses, private or otherwise, that they either are the brand or a strong, a strong essence of the brand that in the basic, the rest of the business is a manifestation of some form of that brand that they're representing. Do you believe that or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, you know, I brand culture, kind of the same thing. You know, you're going to 
and and that's typically driven by the leadership of an organization. And you know, I've had the opportunity, like I mentioned before, you know, Viracon, everyone knows, is very sales driven. Mm-hmm. Um, so manage a management style that's very sales driven. I've had the opportunity to work uh, in the early days of Sage, where it was very R and D and and uh, engineered focused. Um, and then as St. Cobain entered the picture uh, and took over the company, now you, you've got to, to come to terms with leader, find leadership that can, that can inspire the, the team to achieve what is, you know, what's in front of them. But not only that, but I mean, it's, it's stressful because it's new and there's not a playbook for it. So yeah. absolutely. I think leadership in how, how a person or to a person, they treat um, not only their team, but the forward facing industry they play in um, ultimately creates the brand of the company. Yeah. Well said, well said. Um, I'm interested in your internship program. I don't know if that's still a fair question if you're still doing that with COVID. You hired a marketing coordinator, but I noticed you were looking for marketing interns. Yeah. Are you still yeah, doing so, that? No, so I did hire a marketing intern, but um, so Kayla Brown is her name. She's a, she's a student at Creighton University down in Omaha. Okay. And uh, so, you know, I put together this internship because it's, it's kind of like a task orientated marketing right? Uh, content creation, social media management, and so on. Um, and I thought it would be great, but I was intentional in the job posting to not say if it was paid or unpaid because I wanted to field the candidates uh. as to, you know, if they needed it for, if, if, if the college required them to have credit, well, then they probably didn't necessarily want to get paid. Um, but nonetheless, um, so with Kayla, you know, she, she wanted an internship for the experience. It wasn't required as part of her, a part of her credits. Um, and in addition to that, you know, it's ultimately a, you know, it's a paid part-time position. So I told her she could, you know, she could create whatever title, whatever title she wanted, you know, Love but it. ultimately it's, you know, it's marketing coordinator. And I guess the way I look at it is, is that, you know, whether it's an internship or a mentorship, you know, it's, it's, it's a different approach with someone that's just starting out versus someone that has the experience and would then need to be, or would, would require maybe management in a different way. Do you find that you gain energy or not from working with young, young people? And do you learn anything in that process as well with what they bring to the table with their mindset? I do. So when I, uh, when I posted that internship, I had 56 applicants, which I thought was pretty impressive. That's given, very impressive. You know, um, now 10 of them were from overseas, which I thought was interesting, but you know, it was a wide variety. Um, and then just to qualify that a little bit further, you know, you can tell who's, who's kind of a, a tech wizard, if you will, or, you know, um, I can tell that there's a gap in my knowledge. Now I have a 17 year old son, so I think I'm up to date on certain things, but I'm certainly not. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it proved to me that I'm not as young as I think I am, I love uh, it. nor, nor is cool, <laughs> but you know, uh, from a, from a 
from a learning standpoint, you know, that's why I wanted to focus at an intern level because, you know, these folks that are coming into the, you know, the education side of their degrees and then getting out in the real world, they're getting exposure to far more than I would ever imagine, you know, I, uh, and so my ask, my, uh, knowledge and or familiarity with certain platforms, be it social media or video, whatever, you know, it's certainly outdated compared to what, what the, this younger generation knows. And I wanted to see where that could take us. Hmm. That's really good. So uh, I'm going to shift a little bit. I still have a question back on a prior topic. Um, uh, When you're interfacing with stakeholders and you're trying to assess the application for products, uh, are you just a really good listener or do you have a specific process that you go through in order to discern their unique selling proposition or their unique value? Is there something you do to root that out or do you just use your intuition and experience? It would, it probably starts with intuition and experience. Um, chances are, chances are, I believe in, in, in a role like ours or mine in product promotion and presentation, you know, you're not going to convince somebody to put a skylight in a building. Like it's not just because you show up and you say you should put a skylight in a building. That's not going to happen. Right. An architect and or owner and engineers, they have some design parameters to which, you know, standards to which they're going to create this space. And I'm just there to facilitate what products go into that design. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does require listening. You know, I, <laughs> I, you know, I've probably uh, undiagnosed ADD, right. And a uh, little hyperactive. So I have to coach myself to be a better listener and, and, and pay attention. Um, and then, you know, it is kind of intuition as to when is the right time to interject and or offer what it is you're trying to offer and, and how you come up, how you come at that. And that's really, you know, you just kind of kind of be a master of ceremonies, if you will, mm-hmm. on, on how to handle the conversation. I like that. Have you seen uh, an increase, um, a a geometric increase, a linear increase, or no increase in the acceptance, adoption, and use of electrochromic glass. What's what's that? I mean, you've got as much history as anybody. Yeah. What what's the um, what's the level of acceptance these days? Well, it's absolutely grown. Um, you know, and I would say from the early days when I interviewed at Sage in two thousand six. Uh, I interviewed with like six different people and each person brought up a project that they were work that the same project that they were working on. And, you know, in my world coming from Viracon, we were seeing glass takeoffs of a hundred thousand square feet plus. Mm-hmm. So in my, in just my general assumption or being naive, I just assumed it was a massive project. Well, I ended up taking the role and, you know, three months later starting, I realized that it was one project, the only project that they had, and it was like 50 panes of glass, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so as far as market awareness and market increase, it's absolutely grown tremendously. Now, some people might argue that it hasn't been adopted quick enough or to the volume that 
that some of the manufacturers need and expect. But in the same regard, um, you know, even even in the early days of Sage, when we started commercializing and uh, and promoting, it was hard to find a local installation for people to go see. Mm-hmm. Now you can point to anywhere on the map and probably find one within driving distance. So, um, so yes, there's a lot of adoption. Um, and I'm just talking about one category as well, electrochromic, you know, yeah, to clear to a asking. dark state. Yep. Yeah. But, but what I see or what I believe um, is that because of the mainstay of a sage glass in St. Cobain and a, a view and now Halio, there's more people entering the market. Mm-hmm. at a faster pace, of course, they're going to pick on some of the nuances or market limitations of their competition. But the more folks uh, see and hear about it, it's not, it's not considered a new technology anymore. I think it's a, you know, all the durability, all the proof points, all the case studies, existing installations will prove all the technical due diligence. Um, it just really boils down to the right application with the right with the right ownership group, if you will. Interesting. Well, that's, that's good to know. I you know these things take a long time sometimes to catch. And then the more they catch, then the more prices come down because then more competitors enter the market. Um, is there, are there any in your, in your awareness and your work and your listening, being a f- front and center with stakeholders and decision makers, are there any gaps, any, any things where you think, boy, I wish we had a product for that. Are there any product improvements, anything that you could see, boy, this really, we really need more of this. Any, anything like that? Absolutely. Um, and I think we can all admit that what people want is this hole in the building to be weather bearing, but not there, right? Transparent as possible. We want to be able to project image. We want to be able to tune it to to gauge the amount of visible light that comes in. Oh, and by the way, I'd like to stand next to it and charge my phone, right? I mean, all of those things I think are- With glass, product, with a window. With a window, but yeah. I mean, an opening in a building, but you know, we would fill it with a window or glass or some type of, 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 of substrate. Well, the more transparent, the more wide open, the bigger it can be is what people want, but they want it to be highly efficient <laughs> and do all these things that sometimes physics just doesn't allow. But I would say overall, I'm, you know, I'm a student of the game and of the industry, but as far as glass is concerned, it's really amazing what can be done with, with that material substrate mm-hmm. from a, you know, from a start out of a clear float piece of glass and where you can take that and create an electronic device on it. You can put a coating, you can manipulate the aesthetics, you know, there's just, there's so much that, that can be done. And there's such an opportunity out there for some of this existing building stock to just go from monolithic glass to, to insulated glass. And now you've, you've pulled the efficiency levers. Let's talk about that. It, is that one of your other kind of hot buttons, hot topics? You see a big building inventory you know, there's a tremendous, as we talked prior, asset base in in existing building infrastructure. Somebody has to maintain it. Do you think that's a, a major potential growth area? Absolutely. Um, you know, in the first year of business, 2019, prior pandemic, I was still kind of on this renovation 
kick or, you know, when I was talking about trends and things like that. And the reason I say that is, is because these new commercial high rises or existing office space, be it higher ed to or healthcare, you know, are we ever going to be overbuilt? Well, that said, think of all the existing inventory that's out there now. So that generates in, in a lot of regard, a lot of the world's wealth. Mm -hmm. And so, (laughs) you know, yeah, I can go build a brand new building and that's what people want. But in the same regards, I have this portfolio of buildings that I need to be generating rents or incomes or whatever it is. And how do I do that? Well, I renovate it. And there's a couple easy ways to do that, that, you know, you can probably get better financing and or grants to do and make them more energy efficient. Well, where do you pick at first? You pick at the building envelope, primarily the windows, mm-hmm. and then you dress up the entryway. So your, your transparent focal point of entry, be it structural glass or revolving door, you get inside, you got some glass handrail and there you go. We've got, uh, we've got products that we can offer for those solutions. Yeah. And building owners, you know, that that is a product for them and they're competing against other building owners. Um, you know, exactly. I mean, even to the point of recruiting and retention, right? So absolutely. Microsoft has a $4 billion renovation going on right now on their campus. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, the tech companies are building certainly in pockets around the country, Seattle, Austin, Northern California, et cetera, Boston. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. And you know, this is probably changing quickly when you look at total market caps, but the, there are tens of trillions of dollars in building infrastructure, commercial building infrastructure in the United States. I'm not talking about total infrastructure, just commercial building infrastructure of all types, institutional, industrial, commercial, tens of trillions of dollars. And as you state, you know, a lot of wealth is generated there, right? Tech, mm-hmm. tech firms still need a solid building envelope. They need a moisture control. I mean, people need to, people don't work out of tents or on the road, on the street, they work out of buildings, right? Right. And we're, we're obviously more self-aware as a, as a society to our environment, both indoors and outdoors and how that affects our productivity, our health, our well-being, and so on. And I, I look at that as a plus for our industry because it opens the awareness that, you know, we don't have to invent these, these products, they already exist. And if Mm -hmm. people can get behind that, you know, um, it's, it's the, it's the age old St. John of green money and gray money, right? We can, we can explain what the cost of the product is and how that compares to a different solution. So that's real dollars and that can be calculated quite easily. Mm -hmm. The gray money is the, is the, intangible, so to speak. So because you have uh, a community room and an amenity space for your employees, are you seeing a better level of production or engagement or retention, sick days, Mm -hmm. whatever it may be? Um, And and the industry as a whole, the built environment, we're coming up with ways to measure that or capture that and in turn, bring it into the HR culture of organizations and the way they hire. So it's really, it's really interesting. Um, you know, over the past 10 years with the adoption of lead and well, and 
you know, some of these more progressive building standards, what is, what does our environment look like 10 years from now? Mm -hmm. And, and probably more importantly, 12 months from now, when folks start coming back to the office or so on, um, because you made a good comment there, I truly believe in is that people work in buildings. Um, so you need some level of footprint, I, I believe. And, and I believe that, you know, some people are, are able to work remotely and this might've been the first opportunity for them to ever do it. And they love mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. but there's probably a large population of people that enjoy going to work for sure. a number of reasons. And, and I don't think you're ever going to get away from that. Yeah, no, that's really good. We've got both. And, uh, we have some people saying, please tell us when we can come back to the office. And we have a few others saying, you know what the work I'm doing and the commute, I I'm good. I'm good at home. If I need to be in, let me know. And I'll, I'll abide by that. What about as we're, we're coming towards the end, but I still have a question about interiors. Have you seen any increase um, yet in the request for interior glass or interior fenestration materials to help provide separation? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, not only in my day-to-day quote requests, if you will, but um, even the the local um, like NIOP or the real estate companies that I follow um, Mm -hmm. talk about amenities in the workplace and and how they're they're netting larger rents. And I'm seeing, you know, we're hearing a lot of different companies um, doing that. You know, they're they're putting in, they're redoing, they're reducing their footprint and spending more dollars on a smaller space. That's interesting. And, and yeah, the interior decorative glass and or, you know, um, handrail is is certainly in an upswing. I like the idea of decorative, you know, glass in general interior. We, we have a fair amount here, you know, to be able to see in the office. But, you know, it, it provides a barrier and it mm-hmm. provides a transparent you know, a way to see your coworker and feel like you're connected, but still provide some, some protection in the event of more pandemic or other things. So that's really yeah. good. You know, one of the values of talking to you is that, you know, you're interfacing on the front end with people. So you're seeing what's coming, what's emerging, what is actually happening. You're not on the back end somewhere. So that's really good. I am. You just have to be conscious of the fact I'm, I'm in the Midwest. You know, I would love to be in one of those uh, sexy markets like San Francisco or New York, but uh, sure. you know, we're, we're progressive here in Minnesota as well. And many people don't realize that, but Minnesota is quite a progressive culture. It's a great state. Um, so when you're not working, I know you like to spend time with your wife and three boys and boy, they're getting older to have a 17 year old. That's something. Um, do, do you recreate? Do you like to boat or golf or fish or or run or hike or just hang all out? All of the above. All of the, all above? Of the above, man. I'm a man of movement. Uh, we run. We play hard. So, yeah, I would say my my passions are for the outdoors. And like I said, we see all four seasons. Mm-hmm. So we boat in the summer. You know, bike, run, hike, all that good stuff. But uh, probably the the hobby that I talk the most with people about just because everybody seems to be interested when you mention it, it's ice fishing. 
I was going to uh, ask you about ice fishing. <laughs> I love it. Talk to me about that. So well, you, you know, everybody's got their perception and grumpy old men, I think was kind of the, the, <laughs> the, you're not, you're not far off from there, but technology has given us a better way of finding fish and fishing in comfort, even though we're out on a sheet of ice. Now, Jason Graham, my colleague in Minnesota that runs my branch office, he said, I was saying, yeah, you know, they're even ice fishing in Ohio now in January. It was pretty cold. I see these guys, some with nice little teepees and some sitting on a bucket. But I understand they're making full rigs that you can drive out on the ice and plant them there for the season. And like you can sleep yeah. there, cook there. Is that right? Well, they're dual. Pur- yeah, they're dual purpose. Um, you know, they've kind of create it's called it's a brand up here. It's called Ice Castle. Ice and from, my un- from my understanding, it's the number one selling RV trailer in the state because it's dual purpose. You can camp in the summer in it and it's got air conditioning, uh, water, heat, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah. So I have a shack that I have one that I pull behind my vehicle um, okay. and it's, you know, it's 5,500 pounds, oh. which, and you're pulling that behind a half ton truck. So you need some serious uh, ice before what you get out What do you need? There. 12 inches, eight inches. What do you need before you drive out there? You know, I never want to be the first. I don't, I, it's not that important to me. So I would say 12 plus 12 plus, you know, but we, yeah, but you, you know, there's the, the cowboys that get out on three, four inches of ice walking and it, yeah. it never fails. Every year you hear of somebody or multiple times of people falling in and you know, it is, I guess it's risky, but just like anything, you got to be kind of smart about it. I know uh, one of the guys I follow who's an outdoorsman, they make, I'm, I'm not an ice fisherman. It's intriguing to me. We don't have much opportunity to do it here. Not as long as you guys do. They make, um, they make a safety device that you put around your neck, right? That like little picks that you can get yourself yeah. pull out because what's, what's got l- less friction than wet ice, you know, um, <laughs> it's, you know, they actually make snow suits like bibs and coats that you know, are well insulated, but they're also floating devices. Okay. So you did. Yeah. So you can bob up and down for a while until you get hypothermia. Yeah. We did the polar plunge one year as a family and just knowing what that cold water does when you jump in, I would never want to have to do that with a full suit on. No kidding. <laughs> so do you like to grill? I'm asking for a reason here. Do you like to grill charcoal grill? I do. Uh, you know, in my neighborhood, my neighbors and my buddies would give me a hard time that my wife does all the heavy, heavy grilling in our family. But no, I do. I, I enjoy I, it. I just have to ask because on Twitter, there's about eight of us, Sarah Nicewander, Andrew Herring, AJ. Um, oh my gosh. I'll miss some folks. I'm sorry if I didn't mention your name, but I, I took a grill class a while back and I kind of started tweeting some things. Then all of a sudden, Stanley Yee is in that group. There's about eight of us and we need more people. Like we were talking about actually conducting a virtual grilling event and inviting Weber Grill to do part of it. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll throw you on that tweet stream and we kind of, we kind of nudge and prod and, and call each other out and show pictures of each other's Boston ribeyes or shrimp or something that's being grilled on the weekend. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed. I so I do see that on Twitter, like Bill Sullivan and Andrew. Yeah, Bill is um, big. And, and yeah, and uh, hey, you guys eat well. You know, <laughs> I, I I'm uh, <laughs> I'm I'm of the sense that you know I would love to cook like that, but anytime I decide that I'm going to do that, I haven't planned ahead enough, and I don't either have the meat thought out or have it at home, and so it ends up being pretty simple. I get you. I get you. And last week 
well, four days ago, whatever it was now. Uh, Sunday was in the 50s here in Northeast Ohio in uh, in February, the last day of February. So I I said I I got a grill. So I'll send you a boss. Uh, I'll send you a boneless ribeye grill recipe. You, it can't you can't fail with this. It's simple as long as your meat is thawed and room temperature when you throw it on the grill, you'll be good. That. That sounds great. I'd also say too that um, Medford, Minnesota, the tiny little town that I live in, it's known for its for the meat shop that's there because they have one particular cut of meat. It's called a tri-tip. You know, it's not really that great of a cut of meat. Oh, you got to tell me seasoned, about this. The way that it's seasoned and flavored, um, you know, people come from all over uh, to buy it. So for the tri-tip. Yes. And this is at a yes. specific butcher shop in Medford. You, yes, the only one. <laughs> and uh, I tell you what, I will send you one so you can uh, so you can try it. That would be spectacular, or at least send me the link so I can order it. Do something. I would love it. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. And uh, yeah. A- Andrew Herring is already planning his next amazing cut of meat to beat me on the grilling, and that's just fine. He's 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 the rock star in this whole thing. So yeah. Yeah, he does. Uh, he does some impressive meals. He so. does. Well, Tim, it's great. We have uh, utilized a little more than an hour. So, uh, any parting comments for the audience before I close up? Um, you know, I you know I noticed in listening or in preparation, you'd ask what some people tell the younger folks entering the yeah. in, entering the workforce, and I guess you know the one I'm not I'm you know I'm not a man of sharing my opinions or, you know, things like that all too often. But what I would say is patience is key and to stick with it because I'm seeing a lot of specifically in the sales roles, you know, the building community and selling building materials, no matter the sophistication or the simplicity, it takes time. And once you get over that hurdle, it can be very rewarding, both from a financial standpoint and from a, a, you know, a personal enjoyment standpoint. That's great advice. Most of the advice has been quite simple and, uh, you know, keep showing up, keep doing the work and you don't always need to know where it's going. You just need to follow a specific path. Right. And, and so that's great. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening again, um, to the creating structure podcast. He is Tim Finley with Tfin building solutions. Check him out on LinkedIn. All of his information will be in the show notes. You can see his line card and the companies he represents, great group of companies. And uh, I'm John Wheaton, the host of the Creating Structure Podcast, Wheaton and Sprague. Tim, until next time, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. And thanks everybody for listening. We are signing off.